Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Kylie Watson. And I'm Swapna Krishna. Swapna, welcome to the show. Thank you. (laughs) Listeners, uh, for those of you who don't know, this week's guest is uh, one of my favorite uh, nerds to follow on Twitter. Um, You do just a little bit of everything, it seems like. I do. Uh, Everything cool, anyway, uh, by our definition of cool, at least. I think actually cool, for sure. Capital C, cool. Um, For listeners who uh, are not familiar with your work, uh, would you tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, so I kind of write, I like to say I write at the intersection of space, science, technology, and pop culture. So I try to, I do something in, I usually do something in each of those niches at any given time and try to incorporate all those things in what I do. So my big project right now is I'm the host of a new PBS YouTube series called Far Out. It's the next you know, couple of decades, up to 50 years or so in science and technology. Um, the first episode is out, it's on aging, and um, yeah, I'm very excited about it. Awesome. So uh, can our listeners find that uh, on PBS? PBS Terra. PBS oh. Terra's YouTube channel. Um, you can also find it on PBS's website. Perfect. Uh, listeners, I am very confident that if you like this show, you will we'll like Far Out. So definitely uh, take a peek. But in the meantime, we're here for Weirdest Thing. So On The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then, once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Sarah Kylie, what's your tease? So I am talking today about why octopus moms self-destruct. Oh, I love octopus, and I'm, it's, <laughs> I it's get a, very emotional about how short their lives are. Yeah, <laughs> it, it starts sad. <laughs> I'll try to keep it together. Um, Swapna, what's your tease? 
Mine is JWST, which is my favorite thing to talk about right now. It's the groundbreaking space observatory that's orbiting uh, Lagrange point two, a million miles away. It is so sensitive, it can detect the heat of a bumblebee as far away as the moon. Ooh. Oh my gosh. We talk and write about JWST so much at PopSci. Of course, it is, you know, probably the biggest science story of the year. Um, but that is a fact I have not heard before. So I'm very yeah. excited for you to give us the inside scoop. Also, we can talk a little bit about why uh, space people love talking about bees. This <laughs> 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 is an important sidebar for listeners not in the know. Um, Cool. Okay. So my tease is that I want to talk about why rats can't puke and more importantly, why we care. Oh, wow. What do we want to start with? How about I I kick us off with rats? Okay. So why did I do this fact? Let's see. The the genesis of this week's factoid. Uh, Honestly, like many things, I thought of it while I was scrolling TikTok, I think. There definitely there's been like a memified clip of um Emma Roberts character in Scream Queens, uh, when someone makes a very uh poor attempt on her life, uh, <laughs> and she tells them off when she catches them. Um and I love her character on that show. Uh it is just so preposterously over the top. She does an excellent job. Uh but she Uh, tears them apart and part of her rant against them uh, giving them a real dressing down for not doing a good enough job of trying to kill her is that uh, rat poison makes humans puke and it only works on rats because they don't puke and that wasn't totally new information to me but it did start me on kind of a I was like well wait why is that and if that's the case why do so many pieces of fiction use rat poison as the like very ominous someone is being poisoned right now thing? So the answer to the first part <laughs> is actually something I edited an article about in 2018. Um, but I edit so many articles that I forget a lot of the information in them. So it was such a pleasure to uh, Google this question and find an article by one of my favorite freelancers, Aaron Blakemore, uh, from 2018. And I was like, oh, whoops, Aaron already explained this for me, <laughs> like so many things in life. Um, so here's the thing. We know that rodents don't vomit. And that's weird. That's a weird quirk for so many animals to have Um, because vomiting is is a very useful evolutionary tool. I mean, when you think about um, like when you have food poisoning and uh, really don't recommend that for anyone, but it really feels like your body is like trying to (laughs) wipe the slate clean fully, like turn your insides out until there is nothing in there. Um, Because, you know, when you get down into it, that is what the point of vomiting is. It's like there's something in you that should be out of you and your body's like, maybe we can just shut this whole thing down right quick and not have any negative consequences other than the vomiting. Um, So, you know, that protects us from pathogens, from um, food that's gone bad, from poisons. It's not foolproof, of course. There are many things we can ingest that still uh, manage to cause us harm, including but not limited to the fact that Just vomiting too much can kill you if you get too dehydrated. Fluids are important, people. But it is a very reasonable trait 
for a species to have. So why don't rodents throw up? Especially because like, I don't know, I don't want to generalize, but you don't think of rodents as being very discerning eaters. (laughs) So (laughs) you would think that they probably encounter a lot of stuff that it would be really useful to. Um, The answer is that they do. They (laughs) seem to have evolved instead of the ability to vomit. Um, which given for, I could go into detail, but their esophagus is like not really designed for it. Like they are built a different way and it would be, it would take a lot of like energy and changes to their physiology for that to be something that was straightforward for them to do. Um, I think this is true for rodents generally, but just to make sure I'm being as correct as possible, moving forward, when I talk about puking rodents, I'm talking about rats because that's what this study from the University of Guelph is about. Uh, so... Instead of having that mechanism, they have like a super hyperactive gag reflex. So they will like a lot of things give rats the ick. They, they will just go like bleh. Um, and they are very good at uh, when they encounter something new for the first time, taking like the idiest bittiest nibble of it. And if there's a any kind of flavor note in it that they don't recognize, they will just spit it right out in a very like um, involuntary gagging sort of way, um, which, you know, does not sound very pleasant, um, just retching rats all over the place. And researchers really like that. Um, not, not because they like rats being in, <laughs> in distress. Um, the thing is that if you want to study how to make humans vomit less, you need to be able to induce nausea in a model organism in the lab. But unfortunately, for a lot of animals, that would mean having a lot of puking animals in your lab, which is just logistically really not very ideal. (laughs) Um, And rats, they have this really reliable gag reflex that doesn't lead to vomiting and that we understand well enough that it's a pretty good um, analog to nausea that would normally lead to vomiting in uh, most mammals. So basically, by doing enough research that they are like really confident that gagging works the same as nausea that leads to vomiting (laughs) in rats as it does in humans. Now, a gagging rat is a substitute for a would-be vomiting lab animal. Why do we want to study nausea? Because there are a lot of conditions that create like debilitating nausea in humans. Set aside conditions, pregnancy for one, and humans have done some really misguided stuff in the history of medicine to try to combat that. Uh, But then you have medications that are really uh, important, like chemotherapy, that uh, can cause a lot of nausea and vomiting. And that is just, um, uh, of course, not ideal from a patient comfort standpoint. But also when you you think about uh, the, you know, weakened immune system of someone who's going through cancer treatment, um, it is just so not ideal for them to also be losing weight and not getting nutrients. Um, And of course, there are lots of things that uh, doctors and other caregivers can do to help out with that. But that is kind of like the um, the holy grail of like solving the nausea problem is helping uh, people who are going through chemo not 
feel sick to their stomach and be able to keep food down. Uh, and we know that uh, various cannabinoids uh, can help with that. Interestingly, in some people, regular cannabis use can cause extreme nausea, but that is like a very weird subset of the population that, again, researchers are very interested in studying, and I will link to uh, some research on that on popsidecom slash weird. Uh, but for most people, it seems that uh, various cannabinoids can help mitigate nausea. And they think that comes down to uh, regulating serotonin. Um, and one of the ways they have been able to investigate this is with gagging rats, because they are able to <laughs> see, you know, how, first of all, how specific substances like uh, cannabinoids, but also how um, targeted changes to things like serotonin levels affect um, how much they gag. It turns out you can make them stop gagging. And that's usually a good indicator that that's a physiological mechanism that is worth investigating for reducing nausea and vomiting. Um, so I love that, uh, <laughs> that this like very strange, um, first of all, I love that it uh, just like, uh, one thing I say in the book I just published, Been There, Done That, is that like evolution doesn't take requests and it can be really, things can end up uh, going in some very dark and strange directions, but like still from a biological standpoint, be quote unquote successful. And obviously, like, I'm not going to argue that vomiting is better than gagging a lot or vice versa, but it is really funny to me that like these different but intriguingly similar uh, tactics for avoiding ingesting substances that can hurt you um, evolved in, you know, rodents versus primates. Um, also, you know, rodents are are weird in general for not being able to vomit. There are lots of animals that vomit. You know, you've got like sea cucumbers literally like expelling their whole stomach and bringing it back in. What? The far end of the spectrum. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Just start over. Um, so then circling back around to <laughs> my initial question of like, yeah, so what is the deal with rat poison? How much does it rely on the fact that rats can't vomit? And if so... Why are there Agatha Christie books, the queen of actually talking about poison in way too much depth, honestly, for someone who doesn't want people to be doing murder? <laughs> um, why did she frequently talk about rat poison? The answer is not very surprising, but to me, still very interesting. So back when Agatha was writing about crime, um, Rat poison was just kind of everything poison. You may not be shocked to hear that in like the 19th and uh, most of the 20th century, when people used all sorts of incredibly dangerous things for all sorts of stuff that they shouldn't have relied on something that dangerous for, like arsenic in their paint, etc. Um, the stuff that we used to exterminate pests was just like incredibly dangerous poison, full stop. Um, I mean, Agatha Christie talks about uh, strychnine poisoning a lot, and strychnine is just a very dangerous poison. And yes, it was used to poison rats. Um, it, it can poison anything. Similarly, in one of my favorite Agatha Christie stories, um, The Pale Horse, uh, the poison of choice is um, thallium. 
And that is a really freaky one because you absorb it through your skin. And it's super dangerous. So it, the fact that people were regularly using this as a household pesticide is just absolutely wild. Now, these days, luckily, we are um, a little bit more careful with our approach to pest control. So first of all, um, things like thallium and strychnine are like not used <laughs> in like household uh, products anymore. Uh, there has generally been um, a pivot to substances that still might be dangerous or even potentially fatal to humans, but that um, the the dosing difference between what you use to uh, try to kill a, a rodent versus what would cause harm to a human is is much broader, <laughs> much dif- much uh, you know strychnine like you don't need a lot to hurt anybody. Um, the stuff that's generally in household pesticides today, like what the amount you put down is unlikely to cause serious harm to a human. We have also harnessed the fact that rats can't puke, and we now add different chemicals to our pesticides that induce vomiting. So that's great because uh, if a human eats it, they are very likely to uh, throw up, and that will at least mitigate the impact that that toxin has on them. A rat is not going to be so lucky. Um, all of that being said, this does not mean <laughs> that rat poison is not dangerous. Any kind of pesticide, even if it's sold for home use, um, you should absolutely be careful with uh, pets and children. Um, it's just that we went from rat poison being so absurdly chaotically dangerous that it made zero sense <laughs> that anyone used it to just being a dangerous substance. Proceed with caution. Uh, but you don't, it, it no longer feels like absolutely unhinged that we, <laughs> um, that exterminators spray stuff in our houses. Um, I will say that I think this is, this is just me uh, musing, but I feel like the reason it remains so popular as like a, a TV and movie um, signpost of people being poisoned um, is that it, it doesn't require a lot of like exposition. Like people can see a box of rat poison being like used to doctor food and they're like, oh, a poisoning is afoot. Versus like if someone had a, a bottle of chemical name of actually dangerous ingredient in rat poison, people would be like, well, I don't know what that is. And then it's like you only need a little poetic license to make it be actually feasible. Like I've been thinking about the Netflix adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House which features rat poison. And I'm like, well, that's in a really old house. Like, maybe that rat poison is from, like, 1910. Um, And then it also has the added benefit of, like, I do think it's good when TV shows don't um, give people really good, uh, (laughs) easy-to-use information (laughs) on how to ingest poison. Um, Of course, if someone really wants to do harm to another human, I am sure they will uh, rely on more research than one episode of a Netflix show. But for like impulsive, especially when we talk about like I, I saw one article about um, a teenager who who tried to put rat poison in their family's food. And like, you know, for an impulsive person like mad and I think it's I think it's probably good that shows like Haunting of Hill House do not give people actual instructions for how to um, do murder. So um, if you're listening to this podcast looking for instructions on how to do murder, um, I would ask you to please not do that. Um, Please. Thank you so much. 
Uh, but uh, if you see a rat the next time you're riding the subway, um, just know that no matter how much subway track pizza they eat, they will never puke. And oh. so they've got that on you. You can't say the same. <laughs> Don't eat subway track pizza. That's it. That's my whole fact. <laughs> so I can tell Sarah Kylie hated it from start I, to finish. <laughs> oh my gosh, I, I was fine until I think the pizza pushed me over the edge. I was like, I'm so me. sorry. I was like, I gotta go throw up. Oh no! There was one moment where you leaned over to cough, and you were just talking about vomiting. I literally thought you were gonna like lean over and vomit <gasps> and like come back, and I was like, oh, oh okay, no, she's gosh. just coughing. <laughs> no, no, no. I am even even I would would be like, we must pause for <laughs> I need a break. I'm not that dead. Dedicated and also the show must subject. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with some more facts. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well. Whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Okay, we're back. And uh, Sarah Kylie, um, break my heart with some octopus facts, please. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Get so, your revenge for the Subway pizza. Um, well, it's another one of those like evolution does not take requests kind of story. Just like weird stuff going on. But um, yeah, so to start with the sadness um, for octopuses, giving birth isn't as much of a sign of celebration as it is a sign of coming death. Um, yeah, so octopus moms die pretty quickly after birth, and somewhat depressingly, they kind of hurry things along by um, acts of self-harm, violence, and self-starvation. So very sad stuff, um, and it certainly is a very dramatic thing to witness. I couldn't bring myself to watch an entire octopus birth and death in preparation for this, but um, luckily, um, Florian Matterspacher, a senior editor at Current Biology, described a video from a German group called Institute for Film and Wissenkraft. And he watched this video as an undergrad student, and it left him with an eerie sense of wonder and sadness. Uh, so I will just use his description now. It is a very good one. The subject was the life cycle of the octopus, and a female was being observed in an aquarium as she laid her clutch of thousands of eggs. Over the next couple of weeks, she stopped eating and tended to her eggs meticulously, chasing away intruders and fanning her developing offspring with oxygen-rich water, all testament to the rich behavioral repertoire and cognitive skills of these awesome creatures. But when her brood began to finally hatch, a gripping moment unfolded. 
As her offspring slipped out of its egg cases, the exhausted mother was swimming among them with increasingly weaker twitches. And soon she was in her death throes. As her lifeless body sank to the bottom of the tank, her countless offspring swam carelessly around her. This is what a natural death looks like for an octopus. So yeah, sad stuff. Bummer. Bummer, I know. And what this can actually look like can vary um, based on the type of octopus, of course. Um, so, But ge- generally, it is like starvation or reduced food intake. Um, in some extreme cases, like there's a deep sea octopus called the Grandalone Boreo Pacifica. Brooding can take up to four years. And so she weathers away over four years and not just a couple of weeks. Um, I remember when, they, when that study came out and everyone was like, an octopus who lives for four years plus... <laughs> Wow. wow. Like she's like suffering. Really sad. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's fine. Um, so typically though, like the octopuses that have been studied doing this don't live longer than like nine months. Um, and they don't really have two months m- more than two months after the egg laying process. Um so it's pretty grim, at least from the human perspective. But for semilparous living creatures, this is kinda just the usual. So Semilparity, um, which comes from the Latin words meaning a single time and to beget, um, basically means to die right after you give birth or only give birth once in your lifetime. And so there's other examples of animals that are like um, spiders and some kinds of fish. And a lot of plants are like this, like grains and vegetables. Um, but sometimes it doesn't automatically like equate to a short life. So some species of plant and animal live for a while before giving birth and then die in the dramatic post-reproductive episode. Um, for example, species of Pacific salmon undergo this dramatic death cycle, um, and as well some like adorable little mouse-like creatures that live in Australia. And this is, of course, happening to the mothers or the female. But males also don't get off easy during reproductive periods for semiparous species. Male octopuses typically die a few months after mating if they aren't killed and eaten by their partner after they do the deed. So everyone's dying here. That seems fair. Yeah. Given I mean, the circumstances. If, if, yeah, it would be so rude if like there was just a couple of male octopuses just going around getting to live forever and making everybody else pregnant and dead. Um, but just a little fun octopus sex fact. Um, they basically have, the male octopus has this giant arm called the hectoclitus that holds rows of sperm. And sometimes the female just rips it off and takes it and then sprinkles sperm over her laid eggs to fertilize them. So this whole thing is just, there's a lot going on. But anyway, back to birth death. Um, so there's a lot of questions about why this process exists in some animals and why other animals like humans, dogs, mammals, fish, all birds, most reptiles, and even in some insects and perennial plants are iteroparous or have the ability to give birth a handful of times before kicking the can. The biological and evolutionary reasoning behind why some animals go one way or another is still very up in the air. But semiparous animals do tend to give off a bunch of babies at their one big death birth, um, compared to iteroparous animals that'll have a couple at a time. A handful of scientists describe possible reasoning for this in nature as basically when an organism doesn't need to use any resources ter- towards future survival and reproduction, they can give their all into this one giant act for the next generation. And for beings that have a very low survival rate as adults compared to juveniles, it doesn't make sense to save up resources for a next 
reproductive cycle that isn't going to happen. But evolutionary theories aside, there are a lot of questions about why this happens, especially in octopuses, because octopuses are really smart and we are very interested in octopuses. And so why the heck do they do this? Um, some people have theorized, is it because of the lack of food or is it some kind of self-destruct like button or f flip that gets switched in female octopuses after they give birth? Um, so in the 70s, people were starting to actually figure this out. So back in around 1977, psychologist Jerome Wodinski started to take a deeper look at what kind of signals in the octopus body um, would actually be linked to the whole self-destruct idea. And it actually started with an accident. Originally, Wodinski wanted to look at what happened to male octopuses, spe specifically octopus homolinky. And so what he did was he removed their sex glands. Um, but heck it, he wanted to practice the surgery first on a female octopus for whatever reason. Um, he also soaked them in alcohol for anesthesia, which is like a whole other ordeal. Like, can you even imagine? But... During this whole process, he discovered something shocking, as he told the Washington Post back in 1977. Everybody knows that once the female lays its eggs, it stops eating and automatically dies. So I figured I'd try the surgery to remove the glands on post-egg laying females because they were going to die anyway. Lo and behold, I performed the surgery on several, several of the females, and all of a sudden, they began to eat and grow and live. Believe me, this was a purely accidental discovery. So, yeah, the octopus females minus sex gland not only don't die but they thrive um she'll eat double her weight and double her lifespan so good for good for the lady octopuses and so the glands in question that Wodinski removed are called the optic glands which rest between octopus eyeballs and they act kind of like the pituitary glands of mammals producing hormones that are secreted to do all kinds of bodily functions and so when the octopuses had those glands removed, they stopped caring for their eggs as well, moved on with their lives, and died randomly a few months later. So Wodinski estimated that somehow this gland blocks this digestive system from producing enzymes that break up protein, and then that leads the females to self-starvation. But recently, like as in a couple of months, so almost recently, more research has been done by this group at University of Chicago. Um, their first study on it came out in 2018, and they sequenced the RNA from two female octopuses' optic glands and found four distinct phases. The first showed mature non-mated females, like acting as predators, spending a lot of time outside their little den homes, pouncing on crabs, the usual. In the first stage of brooding, the moms sit with their eggs like a quote-unquote deep sea hen, and they take care of them, they blow water on them, they stroke them, they're just like wonderful little future mommies. Um, and then for the first three, four days, um, they continue to eat, but they don't really leave their eggs or their home, and it's kind of just like if a fiddler crab is just around, um, they'll, they'll eat that, but it's not really as much of like a hunting fun thing for them anymore. After four or so days, they, they just stop eating. Um, and then that non-eating phase lasts around eight to 10 days. And the final is that of rapid decline. So just everything starts to hit the fan. Um, the females become lethargic. They don't really give that loving care to their eggs anymore. Um, they move into self-harming behaviors, like slamming themselves against the corners of tanks, um, grooming themselves excessively. They even like rub their um, arms like aggressively against that like big lump on the back of their head called the mantle. And it like makes their arms get all tangled. Um, they get pale and they lose muscle tone and it's just very sad to see. But all of this can I be... hate this. I know. It's, <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's sad. I'm like, oh my gosh. 
And but so all of this links back to the endocrine system. And so pre-mating, female octopuses had high levels of neuropeptides, which are linked with the feeding behavior. But post-mating, this production drops, and instead, production of steroids that regulate cholesterol metabolism and insulin and insulin-like factors ramp up. So. Even more research, this is from just a couple of months ago, the same group um, found specific chemical pathways associated with the post-mating body of octopuses. They first found a pathway that generates reproductive substances that are also in a bunch of animals. So that's not super surprising. The second, however, was interesting, producing precursors of bile acids that promote the absorption of dietary fats. And the third was the most interesting which produced 7-dehydrocholesterol, or 7-DHC. 7-DHC is in a lot of other animals, including humans. But for us, elevated levels of this substance can lead to a serious disease called Smith-Lemley-Opitz syndrome. While this disease affects physical parts of the body, it can make, you know, people who have it have a small head, cleft palate, fused toes, unusual facial features, etc. Um, there are also studies linking it to self-harm. According to a paper published in 2013, systemic evaluations have shown that at least half of patients with this disease display aggressive and or self-injurious behavior. So perhaps unsurprisingly, the authors predict that 7-DHC has a lot to do with the destructive behavior that befalls octopuses after giving birth. Yeah, I actually, um, I am familiar with that uh, syndrome and there was research, gosh, at this point, like a decade ago, um, but I will try to dig it up for the article that suggested that that extends to like emotionally self-destructive behavior that like people with, uh, with this condition will like treat people they like badly compulsively. Yeah. Um, which to me is just like really the, the, the mind and body connection is really fascinating. Right. Yeah. It's just like, okay, wow. You think about like just like a tiny little molecule, but in too much quantities, it'll just really, yeah. And so people with this syndrome and octopuses can both kind of relate to that. And the moral of the story is that octopus life cycles are kind of strange. And it does seem that there is some kind of self-destruct in place for a natural octopus death right after birth. And so... Yeah, and humans and other animals also share some of these molecules that cause this premeditated death. But the strangest part is that not all octopuses actually do this. So there are actually a couple. um, The lesser Pacific striped octopus that don't do any of it at all, they just kind of go about their lives again after giving birth. Um, But the UChicago team is looking at that species actually next. So maybe we'll be able to come back and give it even more updates about the, the happy octopus moms that just go about their lives after giving birth yeah i think it's so interesting that it seems like um it's really just over the last few years that researchers have been able to study enough different kinds of octopus to understand like how much variation there is between species um not that no one understood this, of course, <laughs> but I feel like there was a the the mainstream concept of an octopus was very yeah. homogenized, and it seems like that was kind of a trickle down of like what we knew about them. That generally yeah. speaking, most of what we knew came from just a small handful of species, and especially when you get into the deep ocean ones, they're species of octopus we understand so little. And I think part of the fascination, part of why I love them, and I think part of 
why it's so tragic to us and fascinating that they go through this self-destruct and live such short lives is that they are so intelligent. Oh, yeah. And I think it's, it for me, it's definitely hard to wrap my head around, like, cognition that powerful evolving for a life that's so, like, short and straightforward and brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like, they're not spending decades making art and contemplating existence. So how'd they get those brains and why? Like, what would happen <laughs> if we let them live forever? What, uh, see, that's like, what I think. Oh. I think if an octopus had even, like, half a human lifespan, we would be... We'd be in trouble. Toast the generational yeah. knowledge off the charts. <laughs> yeah. Like, what's going on I don't in know those a lot brains? about... I don't know a lot about octopuses, but I feel like every time I hear a fact about them, it, like, blows my mind. Like, yes. every, th- like, single individual thing I learn about them is, like, mind-blowing. I remember a few years ago there was, um a, like, the most complete octopus genome ever studied. And there were a lot of, like, <laughs> very silly but understandable headlines being, like, octopus DNA shows they are, quote, alien and i was like well yeah like Like they're they're really bizarre so it turns out their dna is really bizarre and that's a really cool story it doesn't mean we don't know where they came from Um, it was one of those things where it's like whenever you, you read stuff about um, tardigrades, it's got kind of the same vibe where people are like ooh and it's like yeah no nature is cool there's cool weird stuff out there that's not we don't, we don't like need they're... aliens to explain that. Oh, my God. It's kind of like looking at a word, like, in an email, and you're like, how is this word this way? You can do that with every animal where you're like, what? <laughs> it's just like, like, about octopus is enough. They start to seem fake. It's, it's true. like, why is, it, why is it spelled like that? Why does this exist? <laughs> like, how? <laughs> uh, well, um, I love that. I feel like there's so much for us to learn from octopuses. And it sounds like, specifically, like, maybe um, – potentially helping us understand like a really terrible rare disease um well thank you for that sarah kylie it didn't make me as devastated as i expected though yeah it's good we know how it works so maybe we can prevent it if if that's what nature yeah oh my gosh i am so ready for someone to figure out how to keep an octopus alive and then let that octopus take over the world I, i we could do so much worse yeah All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with one more fact. Okay, we're back, and let's talk about a telescope. Our favorite telescope. I'm very excited. <laughs> I know. I'm very excited. So I get, I'm, I think JWST is just the coolest I think it's just the coolest thing. And one of the things I love about it is everything you kind of learn about it, especially if you don't know a lot about space and the way uh, observing space works, is that everything you learn about it is like it blows your mind. And then that leads to something else that blows your mind. And that leads to something else that blows your mind. So this this observatory is so cool. Um, it launched Christmas Day. And um, the it is a infrared optimized telescope and that's like key to my fact which was that um it is so sensitive it can detect the heat of a bumblebee as far away as the moon and that's important because as the universe has expanded to be able to see the light 
that's further and further away from us because the universe is expanding. And as the universe expands, this I, this blows my mind. Okay, so as the universe expands, light itself expands. So the, the spectrum of light that's further and further away is redshifted towards the infrared spectrum. So like Hubble does have infrared capabilities. It, you know, people, all, there's a lot of comparisons. Like if we have Hubble, why do we need JWST? Okay, y'all, Hubble, it, it, Hubble is a beautiful telescope. I love it, but it's getting old. It's yeah, getting she's, up there. she's old. <laughs> yeah, it's on, Hubble, Hubble has been on her last legs for like years and years and years. Like every time, every few, every like couple of years, she goes into safe mode. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, is she gonna, is she gonna make it out? She does, but uh, okay. So we need, we need the next generation and that's JWST, but not, not a replacement, just a successor. And they can, they can exist in cooperation for as long as Hubble hangs on. So Hubble does have near-infrared capabilities, and JWST also has near-infrared capabilities. But the cool thing that makes JWST so revolutionary is that um, it has a mid-infrared instrument. So it can actually see in mid-infrared. Uh, and that is significant because when we look out into the cosmos, this is another thing that if... If you want uh, people who aren't familiar with, uh, you know, space, the way it works is if we look really far out there, we're looking back in time. So if we look at something a million light years away, that light has taken a million years to reach us. And it's a million. It's how it looked a million years ago. So the idea of JWST is it is supposed to help us look back in time and maybe even see the first light of the Big Bang, which is like, ah, so like cool. the first light after the Big Bang. <laughs> so after the Big Bang, which we don't know much about, the universe was opaque. So the universe was not clear. Like if, I mean, there are obviously planets didn't exist right after the Big Bang, but if like, if you looked into the universe, you would not be able to see stars like we do at night. Like the universe was opaque. And basically, I think it's like about seven to 800 years after the Big Bang, was basically the first light of the universe. All of that the opaqueness started dissipating. The universe became transparent. So that's the first light of the universe that we are hoping that JWST will eventually be able to see. And to do that, it needs to be infrared optimized, which is why, so JWST launched on December 25th, which very exciting because it had been, I mean, <laughs> Not only had the launch been delayed, just like in terms of how long it was in French Guiana, but like, oh my God, this telescope was like like 15 years delayed or something like that. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh my God, we were very ready for it to get up there. So very exciting for it to launch on Christmas, especially for, I'm sure, all the space reporters who were covering in person who wanted to get home for Christmas were like, <laughs> oh my God, like, just please go. And then weren't able to, but that's okay. So it launched on Christmas Day. And it was heading to Lagrange Point 2. That's important because the telescope needs to be cold. Hubble is in orbit of the Earth, which is great. You know, it's in high Earth orbit. Fantastic. We've seen the pictures that come out of it. We've seen the science data that comes out of it. Fantastic observatory. But part of the reason it is not infrared optimized is because in, in Earth orbit, it cannot get cold enough to observe infrared energy, which is like heat energy. It, mm. Basically, the heat of the Earth and the heat of the things around it, because it's got kind of a cluttered orbit, the heat of the Earth, the heat of the objects around it, it produces enough heat to kind of obscure in the any infrared signals it might be able to detect. So it can do like really good near infrared. Um, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend seeking out the 
uh, the um, pillars of eternity, the, the, oh, the yeah. pillars, the pillars of creation. That's what it's called. The the pictures it took, and then it took those same images in infrared. And like the juxtaposition is cool because it shows you infrared basically allows telescopes to see through the gas and dust surrounding these in these nebulas, see through the gas and dust, and see the star formation happening, which is how. We're hoping that JWST will be able to observe the first light of the universe because it will be able to actually, thanks to mid-infrared, see through the gas and dust. But so Hubble can't be infrared optimized. It's just too warm. So JWST was on its way to Lagrange Point 2, which is about a million miles away from Earth, and it's orbiting Lagrange Point 2. But it only took like two weeks to get there. So the question is, you know, why is it where not are July? our photos <laughs> why are our photos yeah the mirror of jwc which is so cool so it is it's this very cool honeycomb shaped gold plated mirror which fun fact the sh those sheets of gold are so thin that there's only despite the fact that the telescope's the size of like a small plane uh there's only about a marble's worth of gold on that mirror what um because it, the so sheets are thin. so thin it's beryllium, and here's why. The mirror it has to do with the heat. Again, so beryllium uh, conducts, uh, does not warp when faced with shifting temperatures. So that is much more stable than gold is. And so the thin sheet of gold over the beryllium ensures that the mirror will not, you know, change shape and affect the images we're seeing based on the temperature because um, that mirror is 18 separate segments because literally it was too big to fit in the launch vehicle. Like literally it's just too big. So they had to actually fold it up. Like there's this like telescope origami going on. <laughs> oh my God. To actually fold the thing up to fit in the launch vehicle, blast off into space. And it's like the most tense couple of weeks as your life. Cause as it's, as it's like going to Lagrange point to a million miles away where we cannot service it. We do not have the ability to service this telescope. Like we've serviced, Hubble, I think something like, there have been five servicing missions to Hubble. Yeah. Every single instrument on Hubble has been swapped out. Um, the mirror was obviously fixed, not swapped, but the, all the instruments have been swapped out at this point um, and upgraded. We don't have that ability with JWST. So it was like the most tense thing as it you know goes to Lagrange Point 2, but a big part of the delay is adjusting this piece of, each of the pieces of the mirror, making each of the 18 segments work as one. That's a huge, that's a huge part of it. Um, uh, commissioning and calibrating all the instruments or four instruments aboard JWST. That's a big second part, but also just giving the telescope enough time to cool down. It has to, and it's funny because Mary, which is the mid infrared instrument I mentioned that is the most sensitive infrared instrument is actually so needs to be so cold to be at peak operation that it actually has a cooler on board. Like, like space isn't cold enough to actually yeah. have an air conditioner <laughs> oh in gosh. space to keep it cold. So this telescope had to cool down so far. So it took like, I think, two or three months to get it cold enough before they could start commissioning each of the instruments. But basically, the key to this telescope and the reason it can see a, it could detect, it can be sensitive enough to detect the heat of a bumblebee, um, you know, as far away as the moon, is because it has to be super, super sensitive to cold why it's so far away, where it's orbiting Lagrange Point 2, which, you know, which another cool fact is that there's nothing actually there. <laughs> it's where it's there. There, there We have uh, five Lagrange points around or any any like any planet has uh, Lagrange points. And these are basically just points in space where you can put things in orbit at them and they stay 
where he put them because the it's the um, balancing out of the gravity of the Earth with another object. So JWC has a huge sun shield to protect it from the sun. And but the way they're orienting it is it's always going to be out of view of the sun because obviously the sun would overwhelm the poor little telescope so much <laughs> that it would not be able to function. So, yeah. So basically the entire thing is about making it cold. The entire telescope, everything on this telescope is centered around making it as cold as possible to make it super, super, super sensitive. So it can hopefully at some point see the first light of the Big Bang. It's going to see a lot of other really cool things, too, first. Yeah, um, well, and I should say for listeners, uh, we are recording this in June, but you are probably yes. hearing it uh, sometime in the fall. So hopefully you're probably you're like, you're like, yeah, you're you're like really see those photos. And hopefully you can remember how excited you were to see them before you saw them. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So it's often, do we know when, because I have heard, you know, talk of the first light as like the, you know, the um, absolute coolest goal of the mission. But do we have a timeline yes. for like when that is going to be feasible? We don't. So we do know that what, so we do know what projects that they're going to look at in cycle one that is that has been published, but we don't know specifically when that will happen. And I have a feeling it's going to happen in stages. We're just going to sure. keep looking back and back and back and see what we can see. Uh, the observatory is also going to do a lot of exoplanet stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And it has like, it has a coronal, I, I corona, it basically blocks the corona of a sun. It's an instrument right. around the camera that blocks the corona of a sun to actually be able to image exoplanets, which yeah. blows my mind. That's going to be um, so cool. Well, like, we're going to see the first pictures of exoplanets? Yeah. Like, well, oh my God. For all these years, like, obviously, Kepler has done amazing stuff. And I, I love Kepler's whole second life. Um, we can we could get that could be a whole nother episode. But yep. uh, obviously Kepler taught us so much about exoplanets uh, that we I feel, I feel like probably people who uh, are uh, like, I don't know, 20 years old or younger probably take for granted that we hear about exoplanets all the time. Mm-hmm. That did not used to be a thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, but relatively speaking, we know so little about them. We're like, yeah, yeah. It probably is sort of like this kind of sort of thingy. Um, And that is such a huge leap from the way we talked about exoplanets even, you know, 10 years ago. But um, the idea of actually imaging one is wild. (laughs) And evaluating their atmospheres instead of being like, "Mm, here's a huge margin of error for the thing we think might be going on in this (laughs) atmosphere. Um, so I'm right. really excited for that. <laughs> I'm so excited. Like, and like, it's all, it's like also like, like, like it's going to image, you know, like the ice, there's going to look at the ice giants. It's going to look at the Jupiter's Trojans, which orbit the planet at its Lagrange points four and five before we send a mission there to study Ooh. them. It's going to look at the Kuiper belt objects, which are outside our solar system or at the edge of our solar system. Pluto is now a Kuiper belt object. Um, sorry, Pluto fans. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's just, I think, like, I, it's, when he's, like, it's just, it's hard to over, like, there are scientists who have based their entire careers and their entire lives around this observatory. And the first, the, like, the the operating time, like, what, the primary mission of this telescope is five years. That's it. Like, because we can't service it, 
space is hard. Like, you know, it's already gotten hit by a micrometeoroid that damaged one of the mirrors and they've had, they've been able to compensate sort of for it, but like it's, it's, it was worse than they expected. Right. It was they worse would. than they expected, and they were able. Part of the advantage to having the honeycomb mirror is to be able to adjust the segments because they knew stuff was like this was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, but it's not. They're not going to ever be able to uh, like adjust for the aberration completely. <sighs> I know. So it's like already. It's not even started, and so like it's just. It makes you realize, and I think we were all a little bit arrogant because <laughs> the unfolding had gone so well and everything has gone so well up to this point so it brought us all down a peg and makes just makes you realize how delicate this thing is and so like if it lasts longer than five years and all indications say it should that's great but like the primary mission is only five years yeah yeah oh well um it's gonna be a a nail-biting next five years in <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in mm-hmm. space uh science space science wow i'm so good at words you know what i mean um thank you so much for that and personally i feel like that is definitely the winner this week oh 100 percent uh i love how much more there always is to uh learn about and talk about with um jwst you just like even working in popular science like, I learned new stuff today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is so much fun. I always, like, love to come dirt out about science. <laughs> it's, like, it's like what I'm here for. Well, we'd love to have you back anytime. And listeners, don't forget to check out Far Out on PBS for uh, more wonderful, nerdy science facts. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popsi.com slash weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popsi.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.